Well, welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. I just want to give a shout out to all of you who might be visiting with us for the first time, or maybe you're just coming back. We're glad that you are here. We have a special gift for you and a gift bag on your way out. Feel free to grab one at our gift center. We also have an app on the phone. Uh, you can kind of go to your app store and you can download that thing and it allows you to take notes under the, the Sunday button. You can go to messages and kind of track along with all the notes and a lot of what I'm going to be teaching on today is there as well. We're a different kind of a church. One of the things about our church is we believe we want to find real answers to real problems. And if there's anything that uh, 2020 has shown us, that is we need some real answers because there's a lot of craziness going on out there. We're currently in a series called Jesus is King, and we're talking about why the birth of Jesus Christ is celebrated in over 82% of all the nations in the world. You know, that's a lot of different countries. Some countries don't even believe in his divinity, but they honor or celebrate his birthday as a national holiday. Isn't that interesting? Now, what we're doing is we're focusing on some passages of Scripture, and these passages are commonly called Christologies. They are studies of the nature of who Jesus was, and that, of course, gives us a clue as to why he's celebrated by 82% of all nations. The first one, the first week, we talked about John chapter 1. This is the gospel according to John. Then we studied Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20. Today, we're going to talk about Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. So if you have your Bibles or you have it on your phone or whatever, go there and we'll go through it. If you have the message notes through our phone app, it'll be right there located for you. And then Christmas Eve, we're going to study 1 John chapter 4 and... This is the chapter that is most prominently known, that God is love. And we're going to be doing that on Christmas Eve, our first Christmas Eve. So it's technically a Christmas Eve, 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 Eve service. I think I had enough Eves in there. Uh, tonight at six o'clock kind of helps us get. And then we're going to have three on Thursday. And we'd love for you to come. Uh, there's lots of kids that are going to be in there. And so just so you know, I'm going to have a little experiment up here and it's going to go kapoosh. So I cannot guarantee your safety. <laughs> However, you'll have fun if you come. So bring the kids. It's a great family tradition. Now, the series is titled Jesus is King, and the reason why is because all of these Christologies teach us that Jesus is actually King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, because Christmas is celebrated by so many people, we kind of figured out, well, why was his birth so significant? It's called the Incarnation. That's the gospel, uh, first chapter of the gospel according to John. And then we talked about how his kingdom has had such a massive impact on the world today and the implications. And that has to do with the extent of his kingdom. And today we're going to talk about the power of the king. Because whenever you're a king, you have power, and it's how you use that power or the significance of that power that says everything about your kingship. Now, I'd like to tell you a story about a, a young man by the name of Mike Anderson. Now, his, his actual name is Cornelius, but nobody calls him Cornelius. Cornelius, you never call him Corny. Uh, you call him Mike. Now, the reason why is because when Mike was 23 years old, he walked into a Burger King in the South. He pulled out a handgun, and he robbed them. 
Because it was on closed circuit TV, they found out who he was very quickly. They arrested him. They then charged him. And he was convicted in a court of law. And he was going to have to serve 13 years in prison for his crime of armed robbery. Because he was on bail at the time, they said to him, we will notify you when you need to show up and start serving your 13-year prison sentence. So he waited, and he didn't get a notification. So he decided, I need to do something while I'm waiting. I have this thing hanging over my head. So he started to coach youth football. Well, the season went by, he wasn't notified, so he started coaching over again. He realized, you know what, I need to do something to make some money because these kids, they love me coaching, the coaches love me, I want to keep doing this. So he started to work in construction. Within a year or so, he realized, man, the guys I work for don't know what they're doing. So he started his own construction company. And guess what happened? It took off. So he's hired all these people, he's getting all these jobs, he's got this business, it's growing. And then, sometimes the best thing to ever happen to a young man is he meets a really good woman, okay? She starts taking him to church, says, hey, if we're going to have a future together, let's go to church. So he goes to church, he becomes a Christian, then gets married, then his wife has a kid, then his wife has another kid. Then he has another kid. So now he is respected in the community as a youth sports leader. He is a member of his church. He's leading various volunteer ministries. He's married. He has three kids. And he has a thriving business. 13 years later, when he's 36 years old, the state discovers the clerical error that never informed him to come to prison. So they fix it. They send him a letter, says, you have to report to serve your 13-year prison sentence. So what does he do? He shows up. He's in prison for a couple of months, three months, and his family petitions the court. Judge looks at his case, and his judge says, the person that I see before me is not that young man who robbed that Burger King. So he commuted his sentence. You see, that is a story of redemption. And that is something that every American loves. I mean, that is just woven into the very fiber of our DNA. We love comeback stories, don't we? We love stories where people overcome great challenges. We love stories of redemption. And when you look at the power of King Jesus, what is the single power that he came to share with all of us, it's the power of redemption. And we're going to figure out why and how right now. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read it, and if you didn't bring your Bible, that's fine because it will be up on the screen. So beginning with verse 5, it says this, "...in your relationships with one another..." have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not regard equality or consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So I want you to think about that for a second. Jesus is God, but he's thinking 
you know, I don't, I'm not going to stay here because there's something very important that needs to be done. So he lets go of his Godhead. If you want to know how that works, some people are like, okay, that doesn't make sense to me. Listen to the first message because uh, in this series, because I got a tank up here, I illustrated how that works. Comes out of the gospel, uh, first chapter of the gospel of John. He goes on to say, rather, in other words, Jesus chose to do something different. He made himself nothing. And the Greek word there means he actually emptied himself. He let go of it all. So he let go of the fact that he was creator of the universe, all the power, all the knowledge, all that kind of stuff. He lets it go. And this is what it says. And he took the very nature of a servant by being made in human likeness. So Jesus was God first, he lets go, and he's made in the form of a human being. And he was found in appearance as a man. So he is now a man, and it says he humbles himself and by becoming obedient to death. Now, the word obedient here is really important because you are only obedient to a program, right? You're only obedient to an instruction. So there was a mission, there was a plan, there was an instruction that he was complying with. He was going to obey it. Well, what is that? Well, he goes on to say, it says, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, which at that time was the most humiliating way that you could die. So what he's saying is like, okay, here you got this God, God creator of the universe. He, first of all, he becomes a little baby, you know, and babies are pretty humble, you know. I mean, babies, they do two things, right? They eat and poop. That's about it, you know. And so, and you clean it up. And, and then he grows up, and then, then he eventually becomes obedient to the point of death, and not just any type of death, but the most humiliating form of death of all. And it says, because of that, verse 9, God exalts him. Now, exalt is an interesting word because exalt doesn't mean a shout out. You know, where you're walking on, hey man, my buddy Joe over there, he's awesome, shout out to him, right? That's not what exalt means. Exalt means that he was restored or brought back to his, his glory and his authority. So he has all this power and all this authority now. Well, how much does he have? Listen to this. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, and that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. What do you do before a king? You kneel. Why? Because they have more power than you do. Every knee should bow in heaven. Oh, this is interesting. So he has all power and authority in heaven. It says, and on earth and under the earth. Now, why would he say that? Well, he's saying that because in Roman teaching, and if you remember, the people living in the city of Philippi were predominantly Romans. They were pagans, right? They believed in Zeus, you know, the lightning god, and Apollo, the god of war, and Diana, and all these different gods, right? And so uh, Zeus had a brother, and he was over Hades. And so he was considered the god of the underworld, so the world that is under the earth. So that's where that comes from, okay? So he says, Jesus now has a name that is above every name in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And listen to verse 11. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus 
Christ is Lord, King to the glory of the Father. This brings glory to God. So here's what's really interesting about this passage of Scripture. I think you've kind of got the idea in your head of how this is flowing. Jesus is God. He empties himself, lets it go, and he comes obedient to the point of this mission. He has a purpose. He has a goal in mind. So whatever that goal is, whatever that mission is, because Jesus was God first, you have to recognize the fact that this must be the most important mission that you could ever imagine. Jesus has the most powerful mission, the most powerful purpose that you could ever imagine. It's so powerful that when it's completed, God exalts him above all. So what is that mission? What is that? Well, it's found in the words, he was obedient unto death. Why did Jesus die? Now, that question was posed to Jesus in the gospel according to John, and he responded this way. He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. So he came to redeem you back. Now, I know that you guys are all familiar with pawn shops. I know you hang out in pawn shops. You buy most of your stuff at pawn shops, right? Okay, I just want to make sure I've established the kind of crowd I'm talking with. So you all know how that works, right? And that is that you have a lawnmower, you have a favorite gun or whatever, and rent's getting a little tight, you don't have the cash to pay it. So what do you do? You take your gun, your mower, your tool or whatever down to the pawn shop and you pawn it, right? And so what they do is they say, well, I'll give you this much money for your thing. And then they give you this little coupon, okay? It has a serial number of the tool or whatever. And you have a period of time to do what? Raise the cash and go back and redeem your tool, right? So, that's, so you have to come up with the cash. Now, if you don't come up with it at a certain time, it ends up on the TV show Pawn Stars, and they pawn it and make all that money and make it look silly, okay? Which is kind of the standard thing. But that's how it works. Well, in the same way, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. So the purpose of Jesus, the mission of Jesus, the greatest mission of all, the most powerful mission of all, was to redeem you back. And that's why redemption is the power of King Jesus. And redemption is the greatest power that King Jesus exercises in this world. Now, I'd like to tell you why that is and dig into how it applies to your life, okay? So let's look at the four ways in which redemption is revealed as the most powerful power of all, especially the power of a king, all right? Number one, redemption actually defines what it means to be a human being. Now, some people are like going, what in the world are you talking about? Why does redemption define what it means to be a human being? Well, this is actually a very important underlying foundational principle I want you to think about because you live in a world where people are trying to redefine what it means to be a human being. And this is where all of these things that are coming out in society, that you can be all of these different types of things and all of these different types of uh, genders, all of these different types of things come from a philosophical position that says 
we're going to define what it means to be a human being. Now, first and foremost, Jesus knows what a human being is because it says right here in the passage, it says, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So he has the very nature of of a human being. So he knows what a human being is. Now, what does it mean to be a human being to Jesus or to God? How does he define that? And why does redemption define it? Well, first of all, Jesus defines you as a human being as someone who is created in his image. So that means you have two qualities. You have consciousness and you are relational in nature. All right? You have consciousness and you have relational nature. There is a you that is you, right? Sometimes your you feels good when you get up in the morning. Sometimes when you get in the morning, your you doesn't feel so good, right? Now, when you're young, you get up in the morning, man, you're always feeling good unless you do something like really, really hard the day before. You know, like it's summertime and you decide I'm going to get out the new wakeboard and I'm just going to go at it all day long. You get up the next morning and what happens? You're a little bit sore, right? You know, but then something happens to you. It's called aging. That is you get up in the morning and you're sore and you didn't do anything the day before. It just happens. You're like, what's up with that? That's not right. You see, There's a you that is you, and you know that. The you that is you thinks as if you have a soul. The you that is you makes decisions on what is right and what is wrong, and what am I going to do about it? See, that's called consciousness. The fact that you're created in the image of God means you're interpersonal, and that is, is that people matter to you. Love is important. It's one of the highest callings, you know? Young men, they want to find someone to love. Young women want to find someone to love. When, you're getting, when you get older, you're in your middle age, you're like just trying to love everybody you have to love. You know, your spouse, your in-laws, your, your, your parents, your kids, your pets, and every other thing that you have to do, right? So you're just trying to figure all that out. And then when you get older, it's just like, oh, I went for Christmas, but this is my kids to come home and say hi, you know? I mean, isn't that interesting how that works? You know, what, love is what fulfills our souls. But, but Jesus says, look, you have this consciousness and this interpersonal thing, but you have a little issue that kind of mucks it up a little bit in your life, and it's called sin. It's, it's, and what it does is it impacts the way you think, it impacts the way you feel, and it impacts the way you act, the decisions you make. Now, that doesn't mean that every desire you have, like your desire to be in love and find love, your desire to, uh, uh, to, to know God, your desire to have a great life, your ambitions, that those are bad in any way, shape, or form. And often those comes out of being created in the image of God. But sometimes the way we go about doing that is tainted by sin. It kind of mucks it up a little bit and gets us off track. So, so the question is, is, is what redemption does is redemption says, you know what? You are a person created in God's image who has a few little issues that need to be dealt with. And I want to deal with those in a way that doesn't violate your free will. See, I don't want to turn you into a robot. I don't want to turn you into a machine. I want you to, I want you to have a relationship with me so that you understand what love and life is all about. That's what redemption says. You see, redemption is 
something so different, so unique, and so powerful that it helps you understand what it means to be a human being. And if you've ever raised a child, you know how this works, right? You know how this works because you have a baby. And how do you feel about your baby, mom and dad? When you have a baby, you bring that thing home, you know, and it throws up on you. And what do you do? You go, oh, that's so sweet. Right? And then it messes up a diaper and you go, honey, it's your turn. Um, but my point is, is that a baby doesn't really do anything but your Love for that infant, that baby that demands all of your time, steals all of your sleep, and takes all of your focus and attention, right? What happens with that baby is that you love that baby. And then that baby starts to grow. And then that baby gets somewhere between two or three years of age. And that baby discovers a new word. And you know what that word is? No. It's like, eat your green beans. No! And you say, you try every trick, and they take their green beans and they throw them at you, you know? I saw this guy, I, I thought it was awesome because I saw this guy, and um, uh, he had his little three-year-old daughter, it's probably the firstborn, and she was wearing a parka, and they're in Walmart, and he had a hold of the hood, and he was just dragging her through the aisle. She's going, nah, you know? Probably something that she wanted, and he said, no. Now, see, isn't that interesting? Because what happens when your child starts, you start realizing, look, I love my child. I care about my child. My child is so important, but there's something wrong with my child. You know, what is up with that? You know, and, and that's the basis of what I'm getting at is so what you have to do is you start redeeming your child, right? And how do you redeem your child? You start teaching your child things like honesty, integrity, responsibility. Every time you teach a virtue, you know what you're doing to your child? You are redeeming them. This is because you have a vision of what humanity is. And you realize kids and human beings need to learn these things. They don't happen naturally. So redemption defines what it means to be a human being. And then the second thing it does is it gives human beings value. Redemption gives your life value. Now, if I was an atheist, if I was uh, uh, Hawkins or Hitchens or Dillahunty or the Cosmic Skeptic or Bill Maher or Sam Harris, and the list just goes on and on and on, then my position is this, is that we are in a closed material system Therefore, there is ultimately no objective right or wrong, so redemption is irrelevant. There's no need for redemption because redemption doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, in atheism, you don't exist. What? Yeah, that's right. The you that is you, you know, the one that has a soul and can love, actually doesn't exist. Sam Harris talks about in his book is that we're just deterministic, right? We actually don't have free will. We don't have freedom of choice. We are simply products of our chemical programming. And so you, the fact that you think there's a you that is you is an illusion. He says, it's an effective illusion, but it's just an illusion. It's not really real. Now, if you're a philosopher and a thinker, you'd really be able to see the inherent incongruent and logical fallacies of that position right off the bat. But I don't have time to go there. Salty pastor does, but not today. What we're going to talk about is this, 
is that the reason why redemption is so powerful is because it gives your life value. Why? Because the cost of redemption determines the value of what's being redeemed, right? So let's say you have a rusty old hammer and you go down to Pawn Stars and you pawn it. They say, we'll give you 50 cents. So what do you have to come up with to, to get that back? 50 cents. What if you go down there with a, a rare Bugatti and you say, hey, I want to pawn my Bugatti. And he goes, well, I'll give you two mil for it. What do you have to come up with to redeem your Bugatti? Two million. Well, could you imagine what had to be come up with for God himself to leave heaven, empty himself, take the very nature of a ser servant, found in appearance as a man, humbling himself, and then becoming obedient to death in the most humiliating way of all? That seems to me like a pretty big price to pay. And who did he do it for? You. The cost of the redemption determines the value of what's being redeemed, and Christ died to redeem you. That's pretty significant. You're pretty valuable to God. Verse 6 says he gave up all equality with God in order to come and save us. See, this is why redemption is so powerful, because it gives you value. The fact that God wants to redeem you gives you value. And it also says you as a creation of God is valuable, but you have a problem and you need to resolve your problem. And that's called sin. And so I'm going to redeem you and buy you back. And I'm going to make you the center of my cosmic plan in order to achieve that. This is why redemption is so powerful. Just think in these other systems of thought, these other philosophies, is what happens if there's no redemption? You know, if, if you say, well, I'm not going to buy into atheism, I'm going to buy into theism, that there is a God, but then you have to look at all the different ways people try to get to God, and these ways to get to God are called religions, okay? Early on, we talked about Hinduism, we talked about Islam, we talked about all the different Buddhism, all the different forms of religion and how they kind of compare with each other. And the unique thing that we talked about in Christianity is that Christianity is the only belief system that has at its core redemption. See, at its core, God came to buy you back. Every other belief system, you work your way to get to God or to heaven or nirvana or, or peace or whatever may be the case. So guess what? If there is no redemption, this is one reason why it's so powerful, you have to be considered perfect in order to get to God. You have to be perfect. Now, I know that some of you are pretty close, but no one's going to say I am absolutely perfect, right? Because and then at that point, you wouldn't be humble and you're not perfect then, right? So Look, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but that's what happens. If there is no redemption, guess what? You have to be perfect. No human being is perfect. Uh, if there is no redemption, guess what? Your life then is now defined not by the good things you do, but by the one mistake you make. Like Mike Anderson, right? Is his life defined by the 23-year-old act of armed robbery, or is his life defined by being a coach in youth athletics, a husband, 
a father of three, a business owner, and a member of his church. What defines him? Do you want to live in a world where your one mistake defines you forever? Just think if there's no redemption, there's never a comeback story. There's never any good movies. Rocky wouldn't exist. Oh, that kills me. You see, that's what happens when there is no redemption. That's why it's so powerful. You see, if there's no redemption, guess what? The act of somebody else against me would destroy my life forever if there is no redemption. I am locked perpetually as a victim in the injustice of another human being because I can't overcome it. I can't heal it. I can't grow out of it. I can't be free of it because redemption doesn't exist. Are you starting to see the power of redemption and why it's so important to you and to me? And that is the power of our King, King Jesus. Redemption is so powerful because it is the best and only real answer for evil. This is why it's such a big deal. Now, if you're in high school, okay, or you just start college, you're going to go and take a basic philosophy course. And almost all philosophy courses in all public universities are led by an atheist. And their primary goal is to undermine your belief in God. And this is the primary argument that they use in order to do it. And that's this. If God is so good, if God is so powerful, then why does evil exist in the world? If God is so good and God's so powerful, why does evil exist? Well, I don't know, Professor, why evil exists. Well, I'll tell you why. Because God's not good. Why do you want to believe in a God that creates evil and makes evil happen? Oh, I don't think he creates evil. Oh, so that means he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Why do, you, why do you want to follow a God that won't do anything about evil? And most freshmen in college go, hmm, I'm stuck. I don't know. By the way, this is why our church is different. In our student ministry, we try to ground teenagers in the rudimentary, orthodox basics of the faith so that when they're hit with these questions, they go, ha, that is a juvenile postmodern deconstructionist argument, then it won't fly on me. <laughs> what happened? Where did that come from? Because that's exactly what it is. It is a postmodern deconstructionist argument. It's juvenile in nature. Why is it juvenile in nature? I'll tell you why. Because in order to define evil, you have to assume there is a God. If there is no God, there's no definition of evil because there's no objective standard. So there is no evil. So when you say, well, evil exists, you'd have to say, well, if there's no God, how do you know what's evil? If there's no God, how can you say that's evil? You see, if you're an atheist and there's no God, you know, a lot of atheists, history will teach us this in the 20th century, went out and killed millions and millions and millions of people because they thought it was good for their nation or their country. Mao Zedong, Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, Pol Pot, just to name a few. They were all atheists. You see, when there is no objective standard, there is no God, we talked about this last week, guess what? There's no definition of evil. So in order to discredit God, you have to assume there is a God. That's called circular reasoning. That is a postmodern deconstructionist argument, and it is juvenile in its inception. 
Consequently, when you see, when someone says, what's God's answer to evil? Why is there evil? What has God done? You can say the most powerful thing that anybody could ever do in the history of the universe, and that is God redeemed it. Think about that for a second. Redemption is the most powerful answer to evil because at its core, redemption honors your humanity. It honors your humanity. Some people say, well, I wish God would never let anything bad happen to me. Don't forget, okay, God in the heavens and the earth, in here, we live in a closed system here on earth, right? And what brought evil into our world? Did God stand up one day in the book of Genesis and say, you know, these people are, you know, they have it way too easy in the Garden of Eden. Look at that, man. They've got, they've got five-star resort stuff on the beach. They can eat anything they want. They can do this. They can do that. They got it way too easy. So, hey, let's have some fun and inject a little evil in there and see what happens. Is that what happened? No. What is the point? of the story of the Garden of Evil. The point is, it was through our choices, our free will, which allows us to love God. It is that free will that brought what? Evil into this realm. Consequently, how do you now solve the issue of evil without violating your free will? There's only one way to do it, and it's the most powerful way of all. It's called redeeming you, buying you back. And that's what Jesus did. And he did it because he's the king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The dilemma is I want to stop the power of evil, the control of evil, the influence of evil. And the way I did it is because I took all evil on me when I died on the cross and I broke its power. So evil no longer has power over you. Sin no longer has power over you. The outcome has no power. Even death itself in this earthly realm has no power over you. And that's why I'd like to conclude with this last point, and that is redemption is the best answer for you personally, okay? It is the best answer for you personally. All of this power of God, all this power of Jesus has the power to get your life back on track. All of this power, all of the power of Jesus as King has the power to redeem any issue in your life that is tripping you up or getting you in the wrong direction. The redemption of Jesus Christ is so powerful, it can give your life meaning that it has never had before. Something to live for, a passion, an energy for life that you never thought you could have. Redemption is the best answer for you because it affirms your value but allows you to continue to relate to God out of love and not duty, out of passion, not obligation. Redemption is so powerful, it is the most transformative power of the universe because redemption is all about love. What, what if you pawn something at the pawn shop you know, and it's an old rusty hammer, you think to yourself, I don't even want that thing anymore. But if it's your most prized possession, what would you do? You'd move heaven and earth to buy it back. You see, that's what redemption does. Charles Colson is a guy who 
was in the Nixon administration. And at, in the Nixon administration, he was part of Watergate. And so he was charged and he was convicted and he was sent to prison, right? While he was there, he met Jesus, discovered the power of redemption. And then when he got out of prison, he dedicated his life to prison ministry. And he started an organization that has become one of the strongest, most influential prison organizations for prison reform and all this kind of stuff. Now, in prisons, they have this big thing that they talk about all the time, and it's called recidivism. And what that basically means is, what is your potential once you get out for going back? And what they find is that in America and most prisons throughout the world, somewhere between 70 and 80% of people who go to prison go back. And that's one of the reasons why our prison population is so big is because recidivism is so high. So he reads about this prison down in Brazil. It has a 4% recidivism rate. He goes, that's impossible. You can't have that. So he flies down there to check it out. And he, it's in a little town. It's called San Jose dos Campos. And it's just out of Sao Paulo. And so he goes into Sao Paulo, he goes up there and he, he goes, this prison used to be the place where the former political regime sent political prisoners and they disappeared and they would torture them to death in this place. So it had one of the worst reputations uh, as a prison. And what happened is there were uh, some, some monks and some nuns and stuff that took it over because nobody wanted it and it was so terrible. And they said, we'll run it for you. So he goes, I got to go check this out. 4% recidivism. That's amazing. So he gets there and you know what happens is he comes up to this guy and, and this guy says, oh, I'm glad you're here today. I'm going to be your tour guide and I'm going to show you around. So he unlocks the front door. He has the keys hanging on the thing there. And he goes, oh, are you on staff here? He goes, oh no, I was convicted of murder and I have a life sentence without parole. And you have the keys to the front door? Yes, I do. I'll show you around. So he takes him in there and he said, you know, I've been in all kinds of third world prisons and this is one of the cleanest prisons that he'd ever been in. He said there was just an air of peace. And he says, it was just really fascinating. And he goes into all of the things that they do to, to help that out. And he goes, look, there's gotta be a secret to this prison. There's gotta be something that keeps all of these men in line, keeps them from acting out violently and all this kind of stuff. And so he starts kind of pestering his guide with questions. Cause he's like, I wanna peel it back. I wanna see the real underbelly of the prison. And he goes, look, I'm sure you got solitary confinement somewhere. I mean, somebody has to have that. He goes, well, yeah, we, we, we do, you know, sort of. He goes, okay, well, who's in there? I wanna know. He goes, well, no one's in there. He goes, you're avoiding my questions. And he says, he goes, well, th there's one prisoner there. And he goes, aha. He goes, I want to see it. And he said, are you sure? I mean, that's really not, I, I absolutely want to see it. He goes, well, okay. So he walks it. There's this low roofed building kind of in this center. They go in there. It leads down into the ground, like the bowels of the earth. And there's a few of these iron doors that hadn't been opened in decades along the wall. And he walks up to one of these doors and he puts the key in there, you know, and it just screeches as he turns it. Then he looks back and he says, you know, we don't need to do this. Are you sure? And he's thinking, I've seen every horrible circumstance that you could ever imagine that uh, they've incarcerated people in solitary confinement. I need to see this because this is the secret to this prison. I know it is. This is the underbelly that keeps everybody under control. And he says, okay. So he unlocks the door and he pushes it open. The hinges screech from lack of use. And he looks into that room and all he sees is a little chair, a little table, and then a life-size crucifix with Jesus hanging on it. And he looks at the guy and he goes, I thought you said there was a prisoner in here. He goes, there is. He says, it's Jesus. And he is paying the price for all of us. 
See, that's redemption, my friend. And that's why redemption changes your life. It's the most powerful force on the human soul. Let's listen to Harv. Whenever we hear the Word of God preach, we should take one step closer to Jesus. I'd love to pray for you. And if you would like, someone else would love to pray with you as well. Simply text FH Prayer to 97000. You may need to start your journey with Jesus, and we have just the tool for you. You can download a booklet called How to Connect to Jesus Christ. It's right there on our website. Simply take a look under our resources and books. One of the most important steps in our journey of faith is getting baptized. We would love to baptize you, and we are baptizing lots of people during this COVID season, but doing it safely and appropriately. It is a safe and deeply meaningful experience. If you'd like to get baptized, simply text FH Baptism to 97000. If you're in a micro church, a watch party, or doing church at home, use the discussion questions now to continue your conversation. If you're on the main campus, let's stand for closing prayer.